The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 21. We've got a lot of work to do this morning, uh, so we're going to get right to it. We're in Acts chapter 21 of 28, uh, which means we have just seven chapters left before we finish this book, a book that we began uh, just after Easter 2021. And so uh, we've taken a few small breaks. I thought we would take longer breaks, but you guys have really loved Acts so much. We just kind of have kept trucking, and uh, our hope is to finish it uh, right before Easter this year. Lately in the book of Acts, we've been following the journey of Paul. Paul the apostle who had been a persecutor of the Christian church, hated Jesus, hated everything that Christians stood for until he met Jesus, became a Christian, uh, and then he actually became a pastor and, and a church planter and wrote most of your New Testament. Uh, God worked powerfully through him. And as we looked at his three distinct missionary journeys, what we have seen is that uh, Paul is taking the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, to the ends of the known world, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have become Christians through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, as we get to these last seven chapters, I'm just going to be straight with you. They're kind of ordinary. They're kind of mundane. If I could even be so bold without being sacrilegious, they're a little boring, these last several chapters, okay? Um, nothing cool happens except for a shipwreck and a snake bite, and that's coming in a couple chapters, right? Um, because, look, the book of Acts began with a bang, didn't it? You know, Jesus ascending, Holy Spirit falling, fire, tongues, power, all this stuff. And, and the way that the book of Acts ends is Paul uh, under Roman um, house arrest, essentially, talking about Jesus. I mean, for these last several chapters, he's just going to kind of give a defense of his faith before other people. And so I think that's intentional. I think that's kind of the point. Because as you and I embrace God's mission, and as the mission of God continues, empowered by God's Spirit through His people, most of it is going to be ordinary. Most of it is going to be mundane. Um, us living our normal, boring lives to the glory of God, and God through us making Himself known. So that's a good thing. Because sometimes when we read about Paul, we disassociate because he had this wild, crazy, adventurous life. And, you know, we shuffle paper for a living, right? So, so I want you to be encouraged by that. Like there is beauty even in the mundane because God uh, is at work through us. So a lot of work to do this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Uh, we are going to be, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 20 and then I'll read a chunk and we'll talk about it. And we're going to try to make our way all the way through chapter 21 today. Lord willing, hope you packed a lunch. All right, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness to us. Uh, it is so good to see the beautiful smiling faces and not smiling faces of the people in this room. Uh, grateful that, um, Lord, we are able to, to gather um, and that these COVID numbers have dropped enough that our county feels like what we're doing right now is 
appropriate and safe and healthy. And, um, and so we're grateful for that. Thank you for the word of God. Um, thank you for the spirit of God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me now as I uh, uh, proclaim your truth from your word, that you would do business with us, that you would help us to be convicted and challenged and encouraged. And most of all, that we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and cling to him with, with even more tenacity. Uh, we need you. I need you. And so I ask for help now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Okay, let's get going. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 36, says this. And when he, that's Paul, had said these things, remember he's giving a farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when, he had part, uh, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and, to the ne- and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we set a, uh, went aboard and set sail. When we had come into the side of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we, were greeted by, uh, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for only one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and then we went to the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, that's from Acts chapter 6, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Uh, My first point is discerning God's will. Discerning God's will. Paul had met with these leaders from the church in Ephesus back in chapter 20, and he gave them some warnings uh, about, you know, what would happen with the church at Ephesus there. And, uh, and, and when he leaves them now, there are lots of tears because they love Paul. Remember, he was in Ephesus for three years, which is longer than he had spent anywhere. Um, we know from pl- places like First Thessalonians that Paul was a very vulnerable and honest man. He says, I shared not only the gospel with you, but my very life as well. So he was open, he was honest, he was vulnerable. We saw last week that he was humble and bold, which is a unique combination. And he had loved the people of Ephesus well. He had loved these leaders very, very well. And so when it's time to leave, the text, actually the word we parted from them, actually has this idea of tearing apart. 
Like they were so bound to Paul that when he had to leave, it was like tearing, tearing their hearts apart. Like they loved him because he had loved them well. But Paul's goal is to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get there by Pentecost. Pentecost being a Jewish uh, festival that had very unique and specific um, meaning for believers in Christ now. Because that's when the spirit had fallen on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so as he's doing so, he's kind of island hopping. Uh, if you pull this map up real quick, Graham. Uh, so this is a map. Uh, I've been showing you maps for a well, since Easter, uh, because it's important to see the geography so you know. All these little towns and cities that are being named, you can't really see them here because this is a zoomed out version. There we go. Um, at the very top left of that map, okay, that's Miletus. That's where he was meeting with the Ephesian elders, okay? And so when they mention Kos and Rhodes and all these places, he's just island hopping all the way down. Cyprus is that purple island in the middle. He says, we pass it on the left. Then they came down to to Phoenicia, to Tyre, all those places are, are located there, okay, on the Mediterranean Sea. And, and here's what's important about that. He's concluding this third journey. These are real places at real times in history, right? When we read the Bible, sometimes we think about it. You, you might go like, did that really happen? And yeah, it did. Like this is, his, Luke is a historian. He's showing you the itinerary, the, the, um, the, the travel log of Paul as he made his journey here. So he's island hopping. And in this day, it wasn't like you get on a cruise ship with ports of call. If he, if he, you know, so he, he's wanting to go to Jerusalem from Miletus. He's not getting on just one boat. He's got to get on a boat that goes to the next place that's closer. Then he has to find another boat to go to that place. And so there was a lot of work involved there. But um, on one particular journey, they end up in Tyre. And they're going to be there for a week because the ship has to unload and, and reload some cargo. And I love this about Paul because he has this layover. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. But they got this seven-day layover. And he thinks to himself, who can I encourage who can we love? And so they call for the church, the believers there, and they spend time with them. And uh, they try to encourage and strengthen the believers entire. Now, what happens there is that there are some believers who get impressions from the Holy Spirit. And these impressions are that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for him. He's going to suffer. He's going to endure pain. And they interpret that as, you shouldn't go. And so they say to Paul, you shouldn't go. And he says, gotta go. And he goes anyway. He's going to the next town. He goes to the next city. He goes to the next city. We get to verse, uh, verse well, in, uh, I don't know what verse it is. He goes to Caesarea. He meets up with Philip. We remember Philip from Acts chapter 6. He was one of those seven Greek-speaking Jews who was um, installed by the apostles to help serve tables, sort of a deacon, if you will, along with Stephen. And then Philip in Acts chapter 8 ends up uh, preaching the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch, and he becomes a Christian. And it's likely that when Paul and, and Luke is with him, because he's using the pronoun we, Luke is traveling with him now and actually will not leave his side again until Paul um, loses his life. That when they're meeting with Philip in Caesarea, Luke introduces himself to Philip and he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm writing kind of a documentary uh, on the work of God. Do you have any stories? And Philip is like, oh, boy, do I. Let me tell you about this Ethiopian. And this is probably where uh, Luke gets the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and writes it down that we read about in Acts chapter 8. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Again, that this is real people and real places at real times in history. It's not just folklore. 
So they're in um, Caesarea. This guy, Agabus, comes down. We've, we've heard from Agabus before. Um, and he, I believe he must have had like a theater degree or something because he gets pretty dramatic, right? He's going to use an object lesson. It's just not a funny joke, is it? It's fine. Um, he takes this belt and he wraps it around his arms and his feet as an object lesson, sort of in the style of Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets would often um, do stuff like this as object lessons, right? And, and so he's doing this because his impression from the spirit is, Paul, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be bound like this. And again, the thought process is, if this is going to be painful, you're going to be arrested. Don't go. But they plead with him. Even Luke at this point is convinced, you shouldn't go, Paul. And they, it's to no avail. They cannot get Paul to get off of this. And so they go, okay, well, the Lord's will be done. Now, here's what you need to understand. Paul did not disobey the Lord. If you look back at the text, you will not see a single place in here where the Holy Spirit actually said, do not go to Jerusalem. What the Holy Spirit did say is, if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be painful. But he never said, don't go. But these people who are getting these impressions, they love Paul. They're trying to think wisely about this. And they say, okay, pain, we love Paul. We don't want him to have pain, so he shouldn't go. But that's not what God was actually trying to communicate to Paul. Okay? When Paul became a Christian in Acts chapter 9, Jesus specifically said, I will show Paul how much he will have to suffer for my namesake. Paul was well aware that pain and suffering were his lot, that he would endure hardship for the name of Jesus. He was well, well, well aware of that. And so these impressions that they interpreted as a warning not to go, Paul interpreted as preparation for when he got there. And because Paul practiced what he preached, he had a Philippians 4 kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. His, his group of believers there, even Luke, his traveling companion, who are all like, man, you, I don't know if you should do this. It seems like it's not going to go well. And Paul, it wasn't that he wasn't scared, but he had a deep and abiding peace from the Lord that even if I suffer, and it seems like I will, God is with me, he is for me, and he will not abandon me. Now, what do we do with this? Because the reality is most of us are not going to face an Apostle Paul kind of moment, right? But each of us who claims to follow Jesus has to learn how to discern God's will. How do we do that? How do we discern what God is revealing what God is saying to us, right? Because if you follow Jesus long enough, you will, you will sense conviction. You will sense God primarily reveals himself through his word, but he also speaks to us in our, in, through his spirit, and we'll get impressions. We'll get, maybe I should do this. Some of it is like as simple as maybe I should relocate to another city and get a different job. Maybe it's, hey, I'm dating this person, and maybe, you know, Lord, should I ask them to marry me? Maybe it's, it's those kind of things, right? For some of you, it could be that discernment of, should I become a foreign missionary and give my life away uh, you know, overseas somewhere? Whatever the case, we have to be able to discern, what is God saying to me? How do I do that? My first, the first way, the, the primary way that you discern the, spirit, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit is 
does what God is revealing to me line up with what God has already revealed through his scripture? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. God, who is the Holy Spirit, cannot convict, cannot contradict himself. And so if God is revealing, if, 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 if this impression you're getting contradicts what God has already revealed in his word, it's not the Spirit speaking to you. Plain and simple. And I've had people sit in my office and tell me, God is telling me to do this. And I say, yeah, but the scripture says to do that instead. And they go, I don't care. And I go, well, you're wrong. <laughs> okay, repent and follow Jesus. Okay, but we get into this, these weird knots when we think, oh, I think God's calling me to do this. And, and actually using the Holy Spirit's name to put a stamp on something that the Holy Spirit didn't actually do is, is not a good thing to do. Okay, does it align with scripture? Secondly, I would say, does this impression I'm getting from the Spirit make me a little uncomfortable? And here's what I mean by that. Easy is not a biblical category. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we do has to be arduous and hard and like if we're not climbing a mountain with one leg for the name of Jesus, we're not alive. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm, I am saying that oftentimes... Comfort, ease, and the path of least resistance are the idols of American culture. And sometimes we want to we put God's stamp on it and say, well, God's calling me to do this because it's easy and comfortable and doesn't require much from me. And I would say, maybe you should rethink whether the Spirit's actually speaking to you or not about that. Um, maybe another way to put it is this. Is what I think God is calling me to, is that going to make me more or less dependent on God? Am I going to need to double down and really rely on God? Or can I do this on my own? And then sometimes, but not all the time, because we see the, the opposite of it here in the text. What do wise Christians around me say? Okay, Proverbs says there is wisdom in an abundance of counselors. So whether it's buying a new vehicle or taking a new job or should I ask the girl to marry me or whatever, uh, it's probably wise to float that idea by some other godly people that you know and trust and say, well, what do you think God's up to here? Now, sometimes they're going to be wrong. Everyone that Paul, everyone that came to Paul had it wrong. Right? They said, don't go. And that's not what the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said, it's going to suck when you go. But he didn't say not to go. But I still think it's a wise move to float these impressions and these revelations from the Spirit in front of other people and see what kind of feedback you get. This is how we learn to discern the Spirit. And at the end of the day, this, may, this, may, this might help some of you. At the end of the day, you're probably going to be, at best, 70% sure. Okay? Because there's another part of it, which is the faith part. Okay? Um, some of you are waiting to be 100% sure before you make the next move, and I just don't know that that's going to come. Okay? You got to exercise a little faith and go, I'm stepping out a limb here. I'm, I believe, I'm pretty certain God wants me to do this, um, and, and, and we'll see what happens. Okay? Now, you guys with me so far? Okay. Let's look at verses 17 uh, to 26 here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. He's the leader of the church at this point. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. Uh, The next thing you can write down is declaring God's work. Declaring God's work. Paul and his team, they make it to Jerusalem. They meet with James, who's the the leader, as I mentioned, of the early church. He's the brother of Jesus, half-brother at least. And uh, all the elders are present, which means this is a formal meeting. This is probably when Paul delivers that financial uh, gift that he's been collecting for the sake of the Jerusalem church. It doesn't get mentioned until chapter 24, but this is probably when it happens. Now, the last time that Paul was in Jerusalem was probably 10 years before this. Back in Acts chapter 15, after the first missionary journey, is when uh, there was some controversy over what Paul was teaching. He went there and they clarified some things. And now around 10 years have elapsed. Two missionary journeys have happened. And, and in that time, and we've read this, like this is what we've been walking through, is the second and third missionary journeys of Paul. He has endured so much pain and hardship and trial and suffering, hasn't he? These have not been easy journeys. Uh, there, you know, we looked at this in 2 Corinthians 11 uh, last week where he says, you know, um, I, I, was, I was shipwrecked and beaten and, you know, in danger from all these different people. And uh, he even says, I, we, we despaired of life itself. But that is not what he chooses to focus on here. As he meets with James and these elders at the church of Jerusalem, he recounts the work and the grace of God episode by episode by episode over those 10 years. It's amazing. So he's thinking about, oh man, uh, I met up with Silas and we found Timothy. Timothy was this young buck and he joined our team and it was awesome. He tells them about Derby and Lystra and he tells them about when, when they end up in Troas and he has this vision from the Holy Spirit that they should go to Macedonia into the continent of Europe and that he should preach the gospel there. And, and so then he's recounting for them how they made their way to Philippi and they met Lydia and, uh, and she became a follower of Jesus. And then there was this little slave girl who was like annoying him and, and, and he cast the demon out of her and she became a believer and they got thrown in jail and God busted them out of prison and the jailer was about to kill himself. But then they said, don't do it. Believe in Jesus. And he got saved and he joined the team. So he's recounting all these amazing things that God has been doing. When they went into Thessalonica, the, the reception of the Bereans who were, who were listening to Paul and checking it with the scripture to make sure what he said was right. He's recounting to them how he went to, into Athens and he saw all the idols there and they invite him to proclaim 
Jesus at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, and he's able to tell all these thought leaders in the city about Jesus. He recounts to them how he comes into Ephesus and, and they receive him gladly, but then there's this big riot and it's pretty awesome. And he, he's just sharing over and over again. And as he's doing so, as Paul is sharing, God's grace and his work is on display and everybody in the room is filled with joy and with gratitude because of what God has been doing. They are glorifying God and giving praise to God for what only God could have done throughout that region. Now here's, here's, I think, something so important we need to hold on to. This is why it is so important that we share stories with one another of what God is up to. We need that encouragement. Just this week, um, my friend Billy, who has preached here before, he's a, one of our church planters in Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, we have, we use a Marco Polo, a lot of you are familiar, like a little video chatting app. And he sent me this message and he was like, man, I have to tell you this. So, so Billy's from Morganton. He moved back there a few years ago, planted this church. One of the reasons they moved back was because of this one particular friend that he has who he's been praying for fervently for six years. He went to high school with this guy. This guy's a fervent atheist, uh, founded the Humanist Alliance movement in Morganton, like just doesn't believe at all. And uh, he had lunch with that guy the other day. And, and, and he called for the lunch. So Billy goes to lunch with this guy, and he's like, hey, what's up? And he goes, well, um, I think I'm a Christian now. <laughs> he's like, what? And um, long story short, you know, brother had, had some things go sideways in his life, and uh, he started doing a lot of soul searching. And, and he goes, um, I don't know why, but I'm, he's like living out of his office, and he's like, I just started Googling Bible verses. <laughs> And when he did, and he would read the Bible verses, he said they started to jump off the page into his heart. And he just started to understand things and see things for the first time. And, uh, and then through another friend, they, you know, they shared the gospel and prayed with him and he received Christ. And, and he's like, I, I think I'm a Christian, <laughs> you know? And Billy's like telling me this story and he's like weeping. Because he's like, I've been praying for this dude for six years. That's like why we came. And he didn't even get... He wasn't even the one who led him to Christ, but he's like rejoicing that this brother came to faith in Christ. And man, it was so encouraging to me because there's people I've been praying for for a long time and it feels like they're getting further away from Jesus, not closer. You know what I'm talking about? And so God is always doing a million different little things all around us. And most of the time we see none of it or very little of it. We just don't notice and, and so hearing one another talk about what God is up to in our lives or in the lives of others can lift us and encourage us, especially when things are sort of quiet in our sphere of influence. You know what I mean? And so I, I just want to continue to implore you. You may think this story is pointless or it's not interesting. And I would say, share it with me and I'll let you know if it's pointless or not interesting. But we want to create an environment where whether you need to grab one of these microphones or whether we want to record you on video or audio or something, but get these stories out in your community groups. Uh, one of the questions you'll see at the end of the sermon is like, what is God doing in my life or, or in the lives of people I know? And, and God, you might not be aware of anything he's up to. And so you ask your neighbor, hey, what's God up to in your life? Because <laughs> I need some encouragement. And the more that we develop a culture where we share these kinds of stories of what God is up to in our midst, the more we will be encouraged and have eyes to see what God's actually doing around us. 
so hearing one another talk about God gives us perspective when it seems quiet where we are. Now, something else happens here in the text, which isn't part of that point, but it needs to be said. James, hearing this, he's blessed, he's encouraged, they're all praising God, and he goes, hey, Paul, this is amazing. How many thousands have come to faith of the Jews? But listen, we got a little problem. There is still rumor swirling around about the, the kind of stuff you're teaching, specifically regarding Jews who've come to faith. Everyone says you're telling them they don't have to do any of the law anymore which isn't true. Now, Paul was clear on what the gospel was. And actually, he submitted his gospel to the elders at the church of Jerusalem, and they approved it, right? And, and Paul's, Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus, is that you cannot be justified. You cannot be right with God on your own. There's, you can't earn it. There's, there's no works that you can do to prove yourself to God. That you, The way that you are saved, the way that you are justified by God is to receive with the empty hands of faith what Jesus has done for you. Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, fully God, fully man, tempted in every way that you and I are tempted to sin, to disobey, to be self-reliant, to reject God's authority. And Jesus was tempted in every way, and he was perfect and sinless because you couldn't be. Jesus went to the cross and at the cross, Jesus took the judgment of God in our place for all of our sin and rebellion and stupidity and foolishness and self-reliance and giving God the stiff arm. Jesus took all of that in our place and he absorbed the wrath and the judgment of God for us on our behalf and he turned it into God's favor towards us. And Jesus died and he was buried. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death and sin and hell so that anyone who would with empty hands receive the finished work of Christ on the cross for them is saved, is forgiven. Their sins are wiped away. They are made new. They're welcomed into the family of God. And it's, they, they do nothing. The only thing you contribute is your stupidity and your sin and your foolishness. And you're saved by the work of Christ on your behalf. And the elders of the church agreed. Paul was adamant that tradition and human effort do not save anyone, and the elders agreed. Paul was adamant that Gentile believers in Jesus did not have to become Jews in order to be saved. They didn't have to jump through the hoops. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow all the law, but that they could be justified. In fact, he says, uh, the Gentiles have been justified and we're like them because it's by faith not by works, and the elders agreed. So what's the problem? There are other people who are saying, yeah, but he's teaching Jews, they can abandon this stuff too. Now, for the Jews who believed in Christ, they understood that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so it was important for them to still practice these things, not so much religiously as much as culturally. This is their identity as a people. They knew it didn't save them, but it was important to continue practicing these traditions and these customs culturally. So Paul knew he was free. Paul knew he was not bound to or, or obligated in any way to keep any of the Jewish customs in order to be justified before God. But Paul was also patient with the weaker brother. Paul was also kind and gracious, and for the sake of love and unity, Paul agrees to undergo this ritual cleansing. In other words, for Paul, and this is super important, for Paul, his responsibility towards his brother 
was more important than any individual rights that he claimed. I'm going to say that one more time. For Paul, his responsibility towards his fellow man, towards his brother, was more important than any individual rights he could claim. How un-American of Paul. But it looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I wonder about us. How much time have we spent in the last two years clamoring for our rights? Everyone's talking about my rights, my rights, my rights. And no one cares about responsibility towards their fellow man. But Paul would tell us later, hey, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul would say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He would even say, if you continue to clamor for your rights at the expense of responsibility towards your brother, you are no longer walking in love. That's convicting. But it's true. Okay, you guys hanging in? Okay, I got one more point and probably 20 more minutes worth of notes. We're going to try to crank it out in about 10 minutes here. Look with me at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, that's most likely Ephesus, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Don't you love hyperbole? Teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, kind of them. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. They arrested Paul. He's the one getting beat up and they arrest him. And they ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what, had, what he had done. So they arrest him and then they go, hey, what, what did he do? Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? <laughs> we'll stop there. My last point here is demonstrating God's wisdom. Uh, take me a minute to unpack that, but demonstrating God's wisdom. So here's Paul. He's minding his own business. He is humbling himself. He is laying down his rights. He is striving for unity. Have you ever tried really, really hard to do the right thing and it just totally blows up in your face? Just me? Right? This is what's happening here. He's going out of his way to honor and to, to submit to them and to do it. And it totally backfires on him. These Jews from Asia, like I said, probably Ephesus because they recognize Trophimus, who's an Ephesian. They're like, oh, we know that guy. 
They are not believers in Jesus. They are opposed to Paul and to his gospel. They're Jews who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They see Paul and they hate Paul. And so they use, they take a page out of Demetrius's playbook. If you remember Acts chapter 19, Demetrius, the silversmith, right? He caused this big riot in Ephesus. They do exactly the same thing. They start making wild accusations about him and they stir up the crowd using this hyperbole. He's teaching everyone everywhere. Like no one's ever teaching everyone everywhere, right? Like I'm constantly telling my kids when they get into a fight, you can't use the words never and always because they're never true, <laughs> right? They're not always doing those things. Like we have to avoid those sort, that sort of hyperbolic language. But they're saying he's teaching everyone everywhere against our people, the Jews, against the law, and against the temple. Like, those are the big three if you're a Jew, okay? So he's stirring, they're stirring them up. And this is what our world does today. Like, we, the way of our world is to live off of exaggeration and hyperbole and creating a caricature of the other instead of listening and having empathy and trying to understand. Then it says... They accuse him of bringing Gentiles in the temple, which would have been a big deal, right? Gentiles were not allowed into the places that Hebrew men could go. There was actually a wall, and it said, no Gentiles allowed. So if he had done that, it would have been a big deal, but he didn't. They just saw him in the city with a, a, a Gentile, and they're like, oh, you must have brought him in. They made assumptions. They supposed that he did it, which is, again, par for the course in our culture today. They're trying... They're really trying to cancel Paul, aren't they? Right? They got a mob. They stirred him up. They're screaming and yelling at him, pushing him out of the city. They're trying to cancel Paul. And they don't have facts. They don't need facts. Why? Because facts are just inconvenient details that ruin our narrative. (laughs) Now listen to what they do. They lay hands on Paul. They seize him. They seek to kill him, which in my opinion is a little too close to trying to kill him. They stopped beating him, which means at some point they started beating him. I'm out. (laughs) They arrest him. They bind him with two chains, one around his hands, one around his feet. Thanks, Agabus, for that visual. There's confusion. There's a cacophony of noise and voices and accusations. And what is Paul's response to all of this? Does he scream? Does he argue? Does, does he take a swing and try to fight back at these people who are m- mobbing around him? No. Now, I'm sure he's not, I'm sure he's not non-emotive. This is a tense situation. But he appears, via the text, to be calm and self-controlled and patient. And what does he say? He says, um, hey, can I say something? <laughs> Can I just, I, well, I would just love an opportunity to address you with this. Can I say, and he actually, we'll see this next week, but he says it in Greek, which gets the attention uh, of this um, Roman official because that tells him, oh, you're educated, you know Greek. And it makes him pause and listen. Now we'll see what he says next week, uh, his, his defense, but, but here's, here's kind of what I want to draw us to. Um, I mean, put yourself in that situation. You're there minding your own business, doing, you know, humbling yourself. All of a sudden, this mob attacks you. They start fighting against you. How many of us are just going to, like, sit there? Like, some of us are fight backers, right? We're going to swing. If you don't swing at me, I'm swinging at you. Some of us are going to run. Some of us are just going to, like, be those um, 
goats that get scared and pass out, you're just going to like fall to the ground. <laughs> so it's like fight, f- fright, f- flee, freeze, whatever. Okay, so <laughs> obviously this part is not in my notes. Um, have you ever watched, as you read the, the New Testament, as you see the life of Paul, have you ever had this moment where you're like, how does he do that? Because the character of Paul, the attitude of Paul, the way Paul lives is wildly different than any human I've ever spent time around. But yet it looks remarkably like the Jesus I read about in the Bible. And what I want you to see here is actually through this entire chapter, it may not have been obvious, but I hope the lights will start to come on now. For this entire chapter, you know what we've seen Paul doing? Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Demonstrating the wisdom of God. We saw him love the Ephesian elders well, right? Demonstrating love. We saw him, uh, as he recounted what God had done, right, filled with joy. We saw him when they say, hey, it's not going to go well for you. And he's got this peace that surpasses understanding. We've seen him patient with the weaker brother. We've seen him walk in kindness, We're seeing him here. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like Paul has the package deal. So this is, I mean, I I think this is why Acts 21 is in the Bible. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5, we're like, yeah, but what does that look like? It looks like this. This is how we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what the Lord wants to produce in our lives by his Spirit through his grace in you. And all that's required of us is that we surrender ourselves to Jesus, not just once, but daily. So like Paul says to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit. In other words, it's a daily pattern and rhythm of surrendering myself to God's Spirit over and over and over again. And here's what it looks like. We come before the Lord first thing in the morning. We come with a recognition that our natural-born crazy wants to handle things a little bit differently than the Spirit of God. And we are weak, and we are in need of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit moment by moment by moment in order to live a life that honors God. And if you and I will depend on the Spirit of God you will be amazed at the strength that he gives to you. But it is not easy. In fact, it's a fight. Um, Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 2 that the desires of the flesh, that's that natural born crazy in us, the desires of the flesh wage war against our soul. So it's a fight. It's a daily battle. That's why we have to surrender to Jesus and not to our flesh. If we will depend on the Spirit, He will provide strength to us, but it's a battle. And so we fight and we struggle to depend on Him. To depend on Him. Through our ordinary, everyday, mundane, boring lives. (laughs) And often it's imperfect. And quite honestly, most of the time it's pretty mediocre. But here's the thing. If we will daily surrender to the Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit of God for His power and His presence to live a life that honors Him, 
we can be confident that when we fall, we can fall forward. And when we fall forward, he will hold us. He will hold us up because he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so it's this daily rhythm of, Lord, I'm yours today. Fill me with your spirit. Empower me. Give me the ability to do what I can't do on my own. And we walk into life and we see whatever comes our way. And most of it's pretty mundane and ordinary and quite boring. Um, but we trust that God is using us. He's empowering us. His fruit of his spirit is shining through us. And that God's glory is on display through our normal, ordinary, boring, everyday lives. And we can be confident, as, as Paul says to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete that work of the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, so I got four questions I want to throw on the screen really quick, and then I'm going to uh, pray for us, and we'll move into our time of response. We made it, guys. We made it through all of chapter 21. Praise God. Most of it. We'll finish it next week. Okay. Uh, Four questions I want to put on the screen for you. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen when they're all up, but I do think it's important to take them to lunch with you, take them to community group, uh, and have conversation about them. Number one, how can I more clearly discern the will of God? Again, most of us are not going to be up against Paul-type, you know, circumstances. We don't have, you know, weekly, big, massive decisions to make in our lives, but, but... Every believer has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we need to listen to that spirit. How can I more clearly discern the will of God, the spirit of God? Um, I'm going to tell you, number one, it's the Bible, the word of God. Okay. But you answer for you. As you're trying to discern what God's up to in your life, how, how can you more clearly discern what he's, what he's saying? Okay. Secondly, what have I noticed the Lord doing in my life? or the lives of those around me lately. Let me just take a step back and get a 30,000 foot view of this thing and say, what is God up to? Because sometimes, you know, you're on the field and you're running the plays and you can't, you're not up, you know, in the press box looking down at the field and seeing what God's up to. So take a step back. What is God up to? What's he doing in my life? What's he doing in other people's lives? Because again, if, if, if I'm feeling like it's kind of quiet in my neighborhood lately, I'm going to be like, hey, what's God doing in your life? Because I need some encouragement, right? That he hasn't left us, that he's still at work. What's he doing? Third question. Where do I feel the lack of fruit from God's spirit in me? Now, I don't have time to get into this, but Galatians 5 would help us understand that the fruit of the spirit is one multifaceted fruit, not a bunch of little different fruits. So it's a package deal. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All go together. You can't get one without the others. However, we all have them to varying degrees. So where specifically do I feel the lack of fruit? When I look at that list in Galatians 5, I'm like, oh, man, peace, joy, patience. I don't have it. I need it. Where do I feel that lack of fruit? Okay. And then I would just follow by saying, will you ask the Lord to give that to you? Now, be careful. When you ask for patience, be careful. Because <laughs> probably he's going to put you in some situations where you don't want to be patient. That's how you develop the fruit. But where do I feel the lack of fruit? Right? And will I ask the Lord to provide those, to, to, to manifest those fruit in my life? And then fourth, lastly, how does the promise of the Holy Spirit's presence, so again, same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. How does the promise 
that the Holy Spirit is present in my life encourage me to depend on him more and more. So the Holy Spirit is not a tool. He's God, okay? But he's given to us. He resides in us. And so you can think of him like a tool in your toolbox. And a lot of us, I'm, I hate to say it, but I think for a lot of us, the Holy Spirit is like the nice shiny tool that we never use just sitting there. And he's like, man, put me to work. <laughs> like, I want to do stuff in your life. And you're just like, isn't that cool? Look at that shiny Holy Spirit sitting in my toolbox. And he's like, like let me get some scratches on me. You're like, I want to be used, okay? So how does the promise that his Spirit's presence is in you and with you encourage you to depend on him more and more and more? All right, leave these questions up on the screen for just a moment. You can snap that picture, write them down. We're going to move into our time of communion. Uh, this is a weekly thing for us as a church where we remember and we celebrate the fact that we have this, the presence of God's spirit in us because Jesus lived and died and rose again. And so there are two stations at each table. Uh, there are wafers, gluten-free wafers on the black plates, and then there's juice or wine, whatever your conscience allows. Uh, but I want to invite you to these middle aisles. You're going to see a little diagram here on how to kind of come down. We want to try to leave some space for people to kind of come back up that aisle if they need to. So um, I know most of you can't read maps, but if you can, line up so you leave some room. Uh, and then you'll come to one of these two stations, taking the bread and the cup and remembering and celebrating that Christ lived and died and rose again for you. That by his blood, your sin is washed away. By his brokenness, you are made whole. And, and you celebrate that. You come in repentance and faith. If you're not a believer, you can just stay in your seat. Um, but as you make your way back to your seats, uh, there are giving boxes in the back. If you're a regular and want to give your offering, you can do that. If you're new with us and want to give a connect card, uh, that can go in the box. And uh, if you have a prayer request, the back side of that connect card can be used for prayers. We would love to pray for you. Uh, and the band's going to come back, lead us in a couple songs, and we'll get out of here, okay? All right, let me pray, and then I'll invite you forward. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and faithfulness to us. Thank you for the word of God which is sharper than any two-edged sword to pierce between bowl, bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and, and that you penetrate our souls with truth. And so I pray that something that has been said today through your word by your spirit would stick with us and would change us. And um, Lord, that we would be a people who depend more and more and more on the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to live lives that honor and glorify the Lord Jesus. So if there's anyone in this room who is not a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would bring them to faith, conviction of sin and a desire to repent and trust in you. And uh, for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I pray that as we participate in communion, as we give, as we sing, uh, that your spirit's presence would be um, thick among us, that you would fill us with joy in your presence and that we would um, glorify you with our worship. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus and ask them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.